First Peter 2, 1 through 10. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. Today I'm going to talk about growing up. We've asked the older class, even those on Zoom, to stay with us for this part of the service because those who are taking communion, we want them to have the full service experience where they hear the scripture and there for the prayers. Uh, but also, it's an occasion for us all to think about growing up. So, uh, these kids who have been part of our church are growing up in our midst. And it's interesting in our church, when people who have been part of our church move away, when they go out of the city and they've been gone for a few years, one of the ways that they can tell they've been gone for a long time is when they come back and if, if they taught Sunday school or if there's a particular family they get to know uh, a kid in the church, uh, people have been gone three years and if somebody was four when they left and they come back and the first time they're seeing them is when they're seven, you could really see the difference of how they have grown. Now, I'm talking about growing up. Um, it's an appropriate topic because, again, this being Communicant Sunday, these four who just took their membership vows are growing up in our context, but we're really talking about spiritual growth, not physical growth. And, and therefore, um, some of the things that we may be thinking about, about these kids who are growing uh, on a spiritual level apply to us all. So Peter writes that we should be growing. Uh, that's verse two. He wants us to grow up into salvation. Um, but the metaphor he uses is about, is, is the metaphor of an infant, which is appropriate because infants grow quickly. And in order to double your weight in a certain amount of time and to double your height, uh, you really need to nourish yourself. So he, he talks about our, our longing for a spiritual milk so that we can grow spiritually. And that's because one of the primary ways Peter is communicating to us this miracle that happens when the Holy Spirit comes and opens our eyes and makes us new. He says it's like being reborn. You've already been born, but something spiritual happened that's like being born again. And so he's writing to those who have that new life, and he's saying, now I want to encourage you to grow up, to mature, 
to progress. And so this is certainly a timely word for kids in our church having made this transition, maybe some of those present who haven't yet, or maybe some of those who did some years ago, but it's really a word for all people that Peter is writing. So um, the question that I want us to think about today is how do you grow spiritually so that your whole life flourishes? So it's not that you just become a better Christian, uh, but that by growing in Christianity, it, it, it shapes and impacts who you are, your identity, how you relate to the world. What kind of spiritual growth uh, uh, does he have in view, and how do we do that? And so I want to talk about three things. I want to begin with the idea of nourishment. So for us to grow spiritually, we need to be nourished with the analogy of a body. Uh, a body grows as you feed it. You could look at other things in nature, plants. Um, to grow spiritually, you need to feed your soul. And so in verse 2, he says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. And so this new spiritual life that we have, we need to be growing. And even if you've been a Christian many years, the idea is to continue to grow and with the analogy of a body. Sometimes people grow very quickly at first, um, but, but you're, you're to constantly be learning and deepening and maturing. And so you need to feed your soul and um, what you feed it, the nutritional diet, things that Peter talks about, he's already talked in chapter one a lot about the word, about the scriptures. That's an important part of a spiritual diet, crucial. Um, you need to be eating the right things and you need to be not filling yourself up with the wrong things. So for example, soda, as far as I know, the, the only function of soda is really for taste. It tastes good. And so yes, you could stay hydrated, uh, by bring, drinking soda, not as well as with water. Um, but soda is harmful in small doses, not a big deal. But it tastes good, so you, you figure out your life, how much you're willing to, um, to sacrifice a little bit of health for a little bit of enjoyment. That's fine, but, but you would not give an infant soda. Not simply because the, uh, the carbonation would, would bring a weird reaction, or for a baby that's already gassy, soda is not going to help that cause. Um, but, okay, is soda harmful? To a certain degree, I would assume yes, that giving uh, sugar, corn syrup, uh, to a two-month-old is not going to help the two-month-old. But, but the two-month-old does need to be nourished, and, and one problem, I assume, would be uh, once the child is filled with liquid, then when it's time to nurse, when it's time to have formula or whatever uh, is the equivalent of the milk that is meant to nourish and grow them, the baby may not take it, may be full, and it may enjoy the may prefer the sweetness of the soda and may stop drinking the milk. You can see how this is an analogy that, that speaks to us in our very souls and of who we are spiritually to say there are things that you crave that are enjoyable, that you want, that the experience in a short term is good. But the questions are one, but are those things in the long term harming you? And even if they're not, are they, are they leaving you in some weird state of... of craving and satisfying craving, but not really being satisfied and growing. The encouragement for us is to nourish our souls, to, to make as a priority, what are the things that are really going to help me to grow up into salvation, that I would be formed morally and spiritually and emotionally and all of these things through God's work in my life. And key in this, he says in verse 3, he says, here's an assumption here. Do you even want to grow? <laughs> Well, I want to encourage you to grow up if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
there's an assumption here that, that you've had some exposure and it's been good and therefore you want more of it. I remember years ago, if you would travel to another country, if you ate something you really liked, you needed to buy some of it to take home with you. <laughs> so then you might come home and be able to enjoy that experience and try to reproduce it in some way with ingredients that weren't necessarily here. Now, of course, there's international supermarkets everywhere and importers on the internet, and so I don't know how it works now. But, you know, 25, 30 years ago, you went somewhere and you thought, I love this. I tasted something that I really like and I want to keep eating it. <laughs> but now I go to a different context. And so you'd want to bring some home with you and maybe if people travel to that place or you'd uh, figure out a way to get it imported, uh, that's what happens if you taste something that you like. You want more of it. Um, yes, there is a cost in Christianity. Yes, uh, the, the message of Jesus is complicated enough that sometimes it's not appealing at first. But there should always be some taste of goodness. That's primarily, he, he, Jesus says, I've come to give you life in its fullest. And the goodness of God, some touch point with that, awakens a thirst, a hunger, that then over time we recognize, I've always been thirsty, I've always been hungry, but the things I've been pursuing never really satisfied me because they're not good. But now there's something good that I want more of. And, and as we feed in that way, as, that's when we grow, that's when we mature. And that's when we deepen. So there's a language here of tasting the goodness of the Lord. I don't think Peter is necessarily talking about the Lord's Supper. But he is alluding to Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And it's interesting because the message that Peter has highlighted thus far is a message that you've heard. <laughs> you've heard and understood. And that is why in the church, the pattern since the early church was to gather, to pray, and to sing, to do numerous things, but the two anchor points was the ministry of the word, we're going to read scripture and teach it, and the ministry of sacrament, we're going to invite the baptized to gather and to remember Christ through the Lord's Supper. That's been the pattern. We are to hear and understand and believe, but we're also to taste and see. It begins perhaps with hearing, um, but we're, we're sensory people. <laughs> as we struggle, as we want to grow, um, as we need encouragement, we are given something to see and to touch that represents. And, and as you grow older, and I would say to the four communicants' kids, you know, whatever understanding you have now will change as your, of the Lord's Supper as your life experience changes. You may come to church sometimes happy and all of us on the Lord's Supper. It helps to be a celebration of that great banquet at the end. You re could read about the picture of that in the book of Revelation. But sometimes you go through a hard period, and then you realize there's something that God communicates to you, gives you to encourage you. And so... So what's exactly in the sign? Well, well, as you grow and mature, the, the simplicity of the sign, remember what Jesus did on your behalf, grows over the course of your life in complexity to say, but God will nourish me and feed me. And what I want to make sure that you don't lose sight of, um, uh, here's what I'm, I'm going to leave you with on, on this point, when it comes to beginning taking communion, or for any who is regularly in that practice, without defining all the specifics of what the sign of the bread and the cup communicate, on the whole, what you should be remembering as we come in remembrance of him is the goodness of the Lord. And you'll remember that in different ways. Sometimes it will be remembering the love of Jesus so much that he sacrificed himself for us. So I know that I'm loved. Sometimes it's in our 
confusion and questions where you say, but God is still feeding me. I'm still among his people, even though I don't have the answers. Sometimes we do something wrong and we're guilty. And now here's something that, that reminds us that we're cleansed. And week by week, we come to remember the goodness of the Lord. And you know, when you think about temptation or you think about deception on a spiritual level, always somewhere in that is bundled the question, is the Lord good? As soon as you start to say, well, I don't know, then you're in a a more vulnerable place. Key to an ongoing maturity is that confidence, even if you don't have all the questions answered, even if there are times that you doubt it or don't understand it or see it, the confidence that the Lord is good is essential to spiritual maturing, to growth. The Lord's Supper will help you with that. It will remind you, Lord, I don't know that you care about me. Well, here's a sign. I came. I care about you. Remember what I did. You don't need to doubt. I'm good. Let the Lord's Supper, in whatever specific thing it's communicating to you on any given Sunday, remind you of the goodness of God. So the first thing is to remember to be nourished, to grow. The Lord's Supper helps us. Jesus gave it to us so that our souls can be fed. Here's the second thing I want to encourage in terms of growing spiritually, maturing spiritually, endurance. So you need nourishment to grow, but you also need endurance. You need to keep going. Um, To keep growing, you need to keep going. And so this cycle of the frequency of coming back to church and remembering and feeding and reflecting and realigning and recommitting, all of that is part of a life of endurance, which is to say this is not simply something we say, hey, while you're in elementary school or middle school, this is a great thing to do. But once you're in college, then you don't need to go to church. Or once you're you know, midlife, you don't need to do any of this. But we're saying that, that this, this ongoing wanting to grow and to deepen, um, sometimes it gets tiring. I think there could be an excitement if for kids who grew up in the church seeing everyone, including their families, take the Lord's Supper, there could be an excitement about participating in it. It's a, it's a step. Now you're one of the, uh, the rest of the congregation in a certain way. Or there could be a curiosity. What happens? What does it taste like? Any of those things could be part of the process. But, but like anything else, if, if it's only novelty, that wears off. And so if it's just a curiosity in two or three months, well, okay, here, you, you did that, and then what's the next thing that you move on to? <laughs> but there's, there's nothing else to move on to. What we're told is this is helping you to abide, to remain in Christ. This is something that's given for that. And so yes, the experience of showing up at church, the novelty, the magic, the newness may wear off. Um, but the needing week by week to remember the goodness of God and to take hold of that and to be strengthened and to be nourished, that will never wear off. And if you give up on that and if you're not nourishing yourself, well then you won't endure. If you don't endure and if you're not growing, Um, you will fall away. And so what we want is that you would continue to be nourished and that you would grow. And and here in the passage, we're reminded that one of the reasons that it's challenging is because there are these forces against our conviction of the goodness of God or our enduring or our um, continuing to gather to remember in a way that leads us in worship and provides joy. We have to be prepared for seasons of discouragement and confusion um, and any other kinds of, of periods. And, and often, I'm just going to highlight from this passage, it could come in a variety of ways. I'm going to highlight that it comes from within and from the outside. And so what I have in view here when I say it comes from within, in verse 1, Peter writes, So put away 
all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. He's writing because these are part of the human experience. We all envy. When somebody's great, rather than rejoicing in their greatness, we think about ourselves, and, and if they're greater than us, then we don't rejoice. We hate ourselves, or we hate them, and we get spiteful, and then malice, slander begins. Uh, slander, why would we make up things about somebody that's not true? And maybe you don't cross that line, but gossip, where you won't make it up, but you'll say something that's true, but maybe not appropriate to share, because your goal is to tear someone down. All of us have these impulses, these desires, and, and if we just act on whatever we feel, we are molded by those things until we're utterly enslaved. Peter is saying, now with this new life, there's a chance to put them away. The, there's no room in your life for them. It's kind of like, you know, with an athlete with soda, where um, an athlete may enjoy a soda on a Sunday afternoon to relax, watch a TV show. But in a soccer game, you wouldn't see in a place like Barcelona or Brazil where it's really hot, uh, a guy stopping in the middle of the game, I don't think unless they're highly sponsored and paid, that most athletes are stopping to drink soda when they're thirsty and sweating. What would be wrong with doing it? Is it banned by the, the soccer leagues? I don't think it is. I think just people realize at this moment, this is not gonna help me play better in the game. And so, so you look at these things, your malice, your envy, your, your desire to tear others down, your hypocrisy, showing one thing to the world but inside, allowing to take root. All of our greed and our harmful thoughts, things like that. Peter is saying there's no room in your life, so, so put them away. Put all of it away so that you will grow because otherwise you're going to be so full and lack nourishment that you're not going to grow in any real positive way as could happen through the work of the Spirit in you. And so here are three quick tips. I'm actually going to talk more about them next week, but just to give an introduction. So what do you do when you find that you experience envy? <laughs> what do you do when you're tempted to slander, when you're with your friends or your peers or colleagues, and you, and you just have this craving? I want to I say something about that person that's going to make them look terrible. Here are three things that you could do. One is you could just ignore the impulse. There's wisdom to, to recognizing right away, this is not good. So I'm just not even going to touch it. I want to say this thing, and then you stop and you say, yeah, I want to say it for the wrong reason. So I'm going to dismiss it. I'm going to give it no influence in my life. Now, that's the ideal. And sometimes that happens. We can be quick about things. But sometimes these things take a deeper root. You want to dismiss it, but you can't. And so um, the, the uh, second thing that you need to do is uh, you need to resist it. And so... So there are times where you will have the desire to do things that you know you should not do. And one of the spiritual skills is being able to exist in a state of discomfort. That's the thing. You're really thirsty. There's no water. I'll take soda. And so, so there's a, a similar, I know that I shouldn't slander that person, but... <laughs> I'm so frustrated, I need to deal with my frustration in some way, so if I could just tear that person down and my friends have a laugh and they, they think I'm better than that person, I'll feel the relief. But we have to learn to strengthen through faith, that we have a strengthened faith to say, you know what, if I could recognize it's wrong, I'm going to resist it, I'm going to hold out, I'm not going to give in and let this rule over me. That sounds easy to talk about here, but it's really not. And all of us fail, which is why every Sunday when we gather, we confess our sins. <laughs> 
Dismiss it, resist it, but um, don't let it overcome you. Come back to the Lord and and seek nourishment and strength. And so here's the third thing. Um, Confront it. And this is where prayer, sometimes prayer has very specific things in our lives, but it's not comprehensive. But prayer is meant to be how we, we live out the whole of our Christian life. And so if you are grappling with a temptation, with a sin in your heart, in your mind, and you can't dismiss it, and you're trying to resist it, but it won't go away and it's killing you or you wind up giving in, to confront it, what I mean by that is to sit down in prayer and 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 work with the Lord on it. Lord, where did this come from? <laughs> you know, why am I tempted to slander because of envy? So what is this envy? Why? I know that it's not real. It's not something that I want. Where is it coming from? Show me. Help me to see. Um, <clears throat> Lord, tomorrow I'm going to go to school, or I'm going to go to work, or I'm going to go wherever it is I go, and I know that I'm going to be tempted to do this. So, so show me what to do now. <laughs> And if I don't arise from prayer with any clear sense of conviction, show me tomorrow. Um, but it's that confronting our sin, which, which is not meant to be going in in some weird self-loathing, Lord, I'm terrible, you hate me, please forgive me, because that could be a bit passive where you're just not really dealing with it, but coming and saying, Lord, this is here. I want to grow. I want to live an upright life, but I'm being pulled down. <laughs> So help me with this. And sometimes you just need to set aside longer times of prayer to sort through something uh, and to be patient. Lord, I, I'm going to try my best arising from prayer. Um, protect me. Watch over me. Bear patiently with me. But if I fail, Lord, help me. Forgive me. Bring me back. But I want to grow. And so that process of putting away, some things can be put together quickly. By the power of the Spirit, sometimes God just immediately transforms. So something that... That, that was part of who you had been is just gone. Most of us, as you age, realize there's this thing sometimes termed besetting sins. They've, the roots are there enough that you keep cutting them and it keeps springing up. And so we need a process of, of dealing with it, but we need grace for it. So, so one of the reasons we need to endure is because it is when you want to be good and you see that there's a lack of goodness within you, it becomes discouraging. You want to give up. Maybe Christianity is for them, but not for me. The Lord's Supper is meant to remind you. Jesus wants you to remain. He's here to feed you. He's committed to life with you. He shares in your death. He wants you to share in his life. So don't give up. Uh, Keep pressing on. And I'll just say something about from the outside. The reason that we're told to avoid these things of slander, hypocrisy, malice, is because they're common to all of us. So it's one thing to say, I want to be different, and I want to resist it. It's another thing to live in a world where everyone around us struggles with these things. Many of them are struggling to resist it and failing, and some of them are not. That's just who they are. That's what they do. And it can be very discouraging to try to live a good and upright life, especially when your vision of goodness is not just generically moral, but it's following Christ. There are particular challenges that people who are slanderous, people who have malice um, will have that takes the shape of maybe ridiculing you or alienating you because of Christianity. And it's not that everyone does this, but it happens enough that in order to endure, because most of us want to be accepted by people, we don't want to believe anything foolish, that it's easy to get discouraged and to want to give up when we're being slandered. It may not be true, but even if it's not true, it hurts. (laughs) 
So I'd rather not hurt than stay committed to what I'm being ridiculed for. And that endurance to say it's worth the ridicule if it's for what's right. And so in verse 4, the encouragement says, as you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone. So here, now God is creating a new people like a temple. So Jesus is described as a stone. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. We're told that we are to, Jesus came and joined himself with humanity so humanity could join himself with him. But we're told that humanity rejected him. So you come to him. And there's that temptation of a community that's involved in slander and malice. The idea is, well, you don't want to not be there because then you'll be part of their ridicule. So there's this odd temptation to join people who are up to no good. The, the people who are making fun of everyone else, if you think if you could get in there, then you'll be safe. Except that you realize the culture of slander and envy of malice, it means you better be with them all the time because the second you go home, <laughs> you're likely next. Do you really want that to be your community? But then you step outside it and you become the, uh, the subject of it. And it's hard. Come to him. That's what we're told. Uh, do other people reject you? God will not reject you. Come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So that's, that's how God sees. God sees I've sent the righteous and glorious one, and they rejected him. But his rejection had a purpose. It was his love to face the slander and the malice and the hypocrisy and the hostility that he was willing to be rejected by men, even though in the eyes of the Father he was chosen and precious. What we're told is joining with Jesus is that you then come to him, and even if you are rejected by human beings, which you may be, uh, but even if you're not, you are chosen and precious in the sight of God. That makes a difference. It's that goodness of God to say, you know, God is upright and true. He, he doesn't slander. He's not malicious. He's not envious, but he's thoroughly good. And he invites us, come to him. And so Peter says, if you come to him, rejected by men, but chosen and precious in the sight of God, well then, you have a belonging in a new community. You are not a rejected, alienated person, but now you have changed. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so the sign of breaking bread and sharing in a cup communicates when Jesus came, he was rejected by human beings. His body was broken apart. You know, churches have different practices, but at Emmanuel, what we do is we invite you forward so we can serve you, even if you wind up sitting down and taking the elements individually. But part of that sign is there is a cornerstone, there's a foundation of this spiritual house. It's Christ represented to us in the elements. But then he says, come to me. <laughs> and then we get up and we come. And, and one of the things that we're to see in the Lord's Supper is the body and blood of Christ, broken, divided, shed, but we're also meant to see a united, newly reorganized body of Christ, the church. This is why we don't do communion at home alone. 
because the one body broke into pieces is distributed to individuals who were rejected and didn't have a place and are told, now you belong in Christ. And so arise, church, and come. Let's gather around the table. He was broken, but we are healed and gathered. And it's that sign that says, not only do I see his ongoing mercy, he gives me a place, he forgives me, he feeds and nourishes me, but he's put me in a spiritual home where others will pray for me and encourage me and help me. And so that sign is not just in the two things we hold up, but it's in the breaking and the distributing and the gathering and the eating that we're to see that Jesus is doing something to nourish and build us up. So here's the last thing I want to talk about, which is worship. How do you grow spiritually so that your whole life flourishes? You need to be nourished. You need to endure. But you also need to worship because the imagery of this passage is worship imagery, but it's, it's a kind that becomes distinctly Christian. When we join with him, it becomes spiritual, not in a non-physical or or abstract way, but it's also very different from the, the religions that we see in the world, where uh, it's amazing that intuitively, cultures throughout time have said, there must be some way of dealing with our guilt. We need to sacrifice something. And so animal sacrifices are pretty standard, human sacrifice sometimes. But even in the Old Testament, God's people were given these commandments, but, but they're their worship through sacrifices and priests were meant to point forward to the arrival of Jesus in a way that would anticipate and help us to see that once Jesus comes, he would offer himself. Um, and what we're told is, what we remember in his being rejected was his sacrificing himself. That he takes our place of rejection, of condemnation, of wrath, in order that we would have his place in life and growth and health. And so we no longer make sacrifices of that kind. We no longer need to beat ourselves. We no longer need to shed blood. We no longer need to kill anyone or anything. But we remember once for all, take this sign, God did it. Nothing we'll ever do. God did it. He sent Jesus Christ and gave him as an offering. And so now what do you do? Well, you offer the whole of your lives, but not where you shed your own blood, not where you have cries and screams and the things that fill temples but where with joy you go out and you offer yourselves. And so, verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You don't need one priest in a robe who kills an animal, but you now are like a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's that abiding, that remaining in him, that then um, we receive that sacrifice and then we gladly make sacrifices. And sometimes we feel it, it's costly. Sometimes we don't, it's joyful. But that idea of the whole of life as worship. Verse nine, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He's saying you who are not a people are now brought in to this people. God's story from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, a community that, that now has reached its fulfillment in the final sacrifice. And now you're part of that. And it says, this is who you are, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And, and it's that new way of life that will help you to grow spiritually. Your purpose in life now is to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called you. And and look, in a simplistic way, sometimes we do it immediately. What is it you do with your time and your energy? How do you do it as a Christian? Maybe there's some quick and obvious things. But as you mature, you'll realize that, 
that it's not about just doing a few things in my religious service, but it's, it's having a whole new life that then fills me as I go into the world. And so if you're a Christian artist, what does it mean to offer sacrifices, uh, to proclaim the excellencies? You can paint evangelistic paintings or record uh, Christian worship music, that would be fine, that would be appropriate, nothing wrong with that. But you realize that it's not simply now we need to baptize everything with Christianity. The, to, the, to the person who goes to school or at work, why are you there? Yes, you should invite your classmates and coworkers to church. But that's not the only reason you're there. You're there to offer the whole of yourself for the glory of God, which means that, that sometimes you will make Christian art, sometimes you will invite people to church, But the maturing comes when you say, well, how is it that I do everything? How is it that my studies are done for the glory of God? That's the work God has given me to do. So so here's the thing. We tend to think of church as one piece of your life. You come to church on Sunday, and then you go to, you know, sports or music lessons, and then you go to school or you go to work, and then you have your social things with family and then with friends. And Christianity is one piece, the spirit piece. That's not how the Bible portrays it. It talks about life being poured into you, So you're not just a makeup of various identities and various interests and various responsibilities, but you're one new person, uh, part of God's people. And what does it look like to fill the whole of your life so every day when you go out, you're offering yourself to say, Jesus gave himself for me, even to the point of suffering and death. What could it look like for me to proclaim the excellencies of God today as I go out into the world? An example of somebody who did this, uh, a guy named Eric Little, He's known in the church because of this movie called The Chariots of Fire that was popular, I don't know, 30 years ago. I'm not sure exactly how long ago, but he was a runner. Um, And uh, the story that is an interesting story is he was going to be in the 1924 Olympics in Paris to run the 100 meter, and they scheduled it for Sunday, the Lord's Day. So now Eric Little grew up in China, but his family was Scottish. And there is a more of a tradition in Scotland than in many parts of the world, if not just there. But, but where Sunday is a day set aside, it's the first day of the week. So you steward all of your resources. How do you steward your time? The first goes to God. So the first day of the week, what we do is we gather and we worship and we offer sacri- spiritual sacrifices as we come and sing and pray. Um, you have a chance to be in the Olympics. You're a good contender to win, but they schedule you for Sunday morning. What do you do? And what's remarkable is he said, I'm going to go to church. He decided not to go into the Olympics. And I don't know that that was the right decision. I, I sort of assume that if we had to make that decision here, we would find a million reasons to say, look, you can go to church. Hundreds of other, you've been to church many times. You will go to church many times. How many shot, shots at the Olympics do you get? I'm not saying it was the right decision, but I can't imagine most of us making that decision. He said, I'm going to church. And the reason we love the story as Christians is because then they were like, well, maybe he could run the 400 meter, which is a bit risky because that wasn't his event. And he ran it and won. And not only won, but broke, uh, uh, broke the world record. So that's this kind of story. Ah, see what happens. You make a sacrifice for the Lord and then the Lord does something even more amazing. And so it's an inspiring story. And, and I don't want to take away from that because I think you can see that. Here's somebody who made a sacrifice, but he might, might have made a sacrifice and his coach may have said, I don't have confidence you could win the 400, you're done. There'd be no movie, we would never hear of Eric Little. But what we hear about him is about his Olympic um, exploits. Uh, exploit, that sounds like a negative word. I mean, his 
that story is what we hear. Um, when he finished his education, he wanted to go back to China. The part of his story that most of us don't hear is in World War II when Japan invaded China, um, knowing that it was coming, he sent his family away, but he was arrested and put in an internment camp um, in Weifang. And there he was in the camp, and what he did not know and others did not know, um, he had a brain tumor. So here you have a guy who's not feeling well, who's in an internment camp, and he winds up dying five months before the camp is freed. And so, yes, skipping the 100 meter for the 400 meter and, and having a, a world record, well, that's remarkable. But going into a prison camp and dying of a brain tumor, that's not remarkable. Except that the writings of people, the journals of people who were in the camp when he was there, who not only were stunned that he had the opportunity to leave, and, and the reason he got arrested is he went to this poor village and said, well, I'm going to invest my time here. Um, and he was arrested with those people, and they, they said he continued to play chess with the youth, and he continued to encourage people, and he showed kindness to the guards, and, and he stood out in that camp as someone radically different. And I would say the kind of person that would be willing to not run in the Olympics in order to go to church, and the kind of person who would willingly go into a prison camp and be known for being a remarkably kind person in that camp, is the kind of person who sees that the whole of his life is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called him out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You know, we have this ambition to think, how can I glorify God with some great accomplishment? Or will it be through some great sacrifice of death? But there's something in us as we mature to say, look, the sacrifice has been made. I'm just going to be faithful. So Lord, I'm putting you first. And the Lord's Supper will remind us as we come together each week this is the first thing that's going to nourish you. But it's not just for your Christianity. We always end our service saying, let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We come here to worship because remembering the goodness of God is essential to going back into the world and demonstrating, embodying the goodness of God. So we hear about God's goodness, and then you are shown it and handed it to it, and you eat it. And then you go out and you say, I'm going to remember the goodness of the Lord and I'm going to offer myself a living sacrifice. And then, whatever you do in word or deed, do for the glory of God. That's what happens with spiritual maturity. It's a work of God's grace. We can't make it happen. But he gives us means to grow. The Lord's Supper is a means. And make sure you're remembering his goodness frequently and taking what he gives you and going out with thanksgiving and worshiping him. Let me pray for us. Our Father, as we've had the chance to look into your word, we're, we're reminded that it could be hard, it could be confusing, that we struggle with the desire to slander others and with our greed and with our malice and our envy. We get discouraged, we want to give up. And even the Lord's Supper becomes ordinary where we come and we go through the motions and we forget to rejoice. We forget to see what you've done. It, it loses its power, and therefore, we lose our power. Lord, we do pray for uh, Rachel and for Zachary, for Asaf and Mateo. We pray for all of us today and that this would be a sign that refreshes and encourages, that strengthens us, not just to get through Monday or Tuesday, but, but really to feed us for the years ahead, that we would taste and see that you were good, and that goodness would so grip our hearts that we would go into the world filled with the desire to demonstrate your goodness with our attitudes, our actions. Uh, mold us all in that way and send us back into the world to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. 
Uh, do that work of grace in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.